And we're not through with him. Thank you, Ken. And we do want everyone to stay around for lunch. Uh, lunch will be served about 20 minutes after the class is over. So uh, even if you haven't made a reservation, I think there'll probably be enough food. And uh, so please stick around, and we're going to have a little roast. <laughs> so, um, I, was, uh, I received an invitation to speak at the church on April the 6th. So on April the 6th, I want to be speaking on Sunday evening. Okay, Sunday evening, April the 6th. So I wanted to let you know that. I don't know if Robert wanted me to say that. <laughs> Because now we know he's probably going to be out of town. <laughs> and uh, fewer people will show up, except for this class. <laughs> I want to give you advance notice that on April 6th, I'll be speaking. So begin to pray for me for that endeavor. Okay, let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Now today we come to two typical events in the life of Jesus. And if you look at chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 12, first of all, this is the beginning of event number 1. Look what it says. And it happened, this is Luke 12, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city. That's the first event. It happened when he was in a certain city. Look at verse 17. This is the second event. And it happened on a certain day. First event, it happened in a certain city. Which city? We don't know. Second event happens on a certain day. Which day? We don't know. And this is Luke's way of telling us that these would just be typical events in the life of Christ. These are random events, maybe representative events. The city's not important, the day's not important. But what he wants you to do is see what happens in a typical uh, day or two in the life of Jesus Christ. And on this particular, in this particular city and on this particular day, Jesus is going to preach the gospel of the kingdom and he's going to demonstrate the power of the kingdom in the city and on this day. So let's look at verse 12. Okay, let's look at verse 12. It came to pass when he, that was Jesus, was in a certain city that behold, a man was full of leprosy, saw Jesus, and he fell on his face, and he implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put his hand out, and he touched him. So let's make a few mental notes as we look at these two verses. The first thing that I want you to notice is that this man has no name. So because this man has no name, this is our way of indicating, or Luke's way of indicating, that he has no special status. He has no special, uh, he's not a part of any social class. He's just an ordinary person. So if you want to know what Jesus does in the lives of ordinary people, you can look at this particular man's situation. Notice the second thing is that he has an advanced case <coughs> of leprosy. An advanced case of leprosy. It says there was a certain man, he was full of leprosy. He was covered with leprosy. So this isn't somebody who's just heard that he has a disease. It's going to eventually be fatal. This is a person who's in the advanced stages of a disease. Okay, the third thing I want you to notice is that he recognizes that Jesus is superior to him. It says he fell on his face. You see that, verse 12? 
And look what he called him. He called him Lord. Now, he falls on his face and he calls him Lord. Does this remind you of somebody? Reminds you of Peter from last week. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down. Look at the last words of verse 8. He called him Lord. He saw that Jesus was superior to him. And so does this man. When Christ does tremendous <coughs> miracles and uh, people recognize that Christ is superior to themselves and then go to him for help. So we see this. Next, I want you to notice that he views Jesus as a prophet. Okay? He views Jesus as a prophet. He implores him, if you're willing, make me clean. Now, why do I say that he sees Jesus as a prophet and he asks this prophet to make him clean? Because if you look at the context of this story, and you look back at chapter 4 and verse 27, remember, we're always having to look at context. Luke writes his stories and places his events in certain order so that they stand next to each other, and when one thing is said, it reminds you of something that was said before. In chapter 4 and verse 27, Jesus was giving an illustration. And here's an illustration about a prophet. Look at verse 27. And many lepers. Do you see that? That's what we have here. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So here we see we have a man in chapter 4 that Jesus tells us about in past history who's a leper. He has a name, <coughs> Naaman. Here's a man without a name, but he has the same disease. He's a leper. Naaman, in order to be cleansed, seeks out a prophet. <coughs> This man seeks out Jesus, showing that he sees Jesus as a prophet. Now, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 5, you see the story of Naaman. And I want to show you one point. That in that story, and that is that Naaman is encouraged to seek out a prophet in order to be cleansed. Okay? So go back to 2 Kings in chapter 5. And look at verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And he was also a mighty man of valor. But he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids. And it brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. Now, Syrians are not nice people. They are Israel's enemies. They had gone out on a raid, and they brought back a young girl. Now, yesterday afternoon on television, there was a movie called The Missing with Tommy Lee Jones and Kate Blanchett. And I watched it. And it was about an Indian raid, and they went in and they took Kate's daughter, this young girl, and they just whisked her away. And that's what happened. The Syrians invade, and they whisk this young girl away. And she waited on Naaman's wife. They used her as a slave. Now remember, Naaman 
has leprosy. Verse 3, then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with, look at this, the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now Jesus is passing through, and there's a man with leprosy, and he hears that Jesus is a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God, so guess what he does? He seeks healing. And so we're to understand this story in light of the Naaman story. So a prophet is needed if this man is going to be healed, so he seeks out Jesus. Now notice that Jesus ignores social protocol in verse 13. He put out his hand and he touched him. Now that's the one thing you don't do, right? Leprosy was as much a social disease as it was a physical disease. There were all kinds of rules. Lepers had to stay 100 feet away from everybody. They could never be where the wind was blowing, so the wind would hit them and then touch other people. They had to be on the other side of the way the wind was blowing. And there were all kinds of things. And when they came near a person within 100 feet, they had to start crying out, unclean, unclean. They had to warn the people. And yet this leper comes, and Jesus touches his leprous body. And so Jesus ignores the protocol. And that's not unusual because we saw in verse 40 of chapter 4, again the context, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands, look at this, on every one of them and healed them. So Jesus was constantly touching people, diseased people. Now you know... Everyone in this room knows that the way you get sickness, colds, are through <coughs> touch. That's why at school, when I'm, when I'm with hundreds of students, I go into the restroom and I wash my hands with soap probably five or six times a day. So, because I don't want their germs to get on me and I end up getting sick. But Jesus is willing to touch anybody. So he's willing to break social protocol, and he does this. But then look what happens in the middle of verse 13. The guy asked him, well, are you willing to heal me? And he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. So this shows me that Jesus is willing. Now, the fact that it says the leprosy left him, remember that? That word's been used over and over again. It departed. The fever left her. Uh, the demon departed from them. The sickness <laughs> departed. Seems to indicate that Jesus might think that this particular disease, leprosy, in this man's case, had some sort of demonic connection in this particular situation. <clears throat> All sickness is not demonic, but when you see that word left or depart, that's Luke's way of telling us that it may have had some sort of demonic uh, connection. But notice that Jesus says that he's willing. He said, if you're willing, and Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. I'm convinced that it's God's will to heal us. So that's a pretty bold statement. I believe that it's God's will to heal us. Except in rare circumstances when it's time for us to die. Because, let me tell you why I think that this is a basic principle. I think it's intuitive. I think that, that we all feel that way. Because when you get a headache, what do you do? 
you take an aspirin. If you get a, an infection, what do you do? You go to the doctor and you get a prescription. Why do you do that? Because you want to go against God's will? I mean, if you didn't think it was God's will, you wouldn't go to the doctor, would you? You'd say, oh, well, this is good. You know, I've got 105 temperature. Thank you, Lord. I believe this is your will. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. See, just at a gut level, we know that it's not good to be sick. We should be well. And I think, for the most part, it's God's will for us to be, to be well. Especially, now listen carefully. Because, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to narrow this down. I don't say that's all the time. Especially when it's related to some sort of demonic oppression. Because remember he said he came to set the captives, what? Free. Those who are oppressed by Satan. And some of the illnesses that you'll see in Luke are demon related. And he always wants us freed from the forces of evil. And in those days, especially, some of the sickness was demon related. So in this case, he says, at least in this case, I'm willing to be cleansed. Now he's charged him in verse 14 to tell no one. Look, tell no one. Why not? Why does he say, be quiet? This is not the first time he said that in Luke, is it? When someone's healed? He says, don't tell anybody. Why? Because crowds are a barrier and a hinder to Jesus getting that gospel of the kingdom out in all the different cities. Because they keep following him. They keep pressing upon him. They, they want him to heal all of them. He, he has a purpose there. He has to get out there and preach that gospel. And so he says, it's not time for everybody to know that I'm the Messiah and I'm the great miracle worker, so keep quiet. But, look what he says. Go and show yourself to the priest. And make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. Now what's he doing here? Now we're not going to turn here, but in chapter 13 and 14 of Leviticus, we discover what's called the law of the leper. And in these chapters, the first chapter, chapter 13, tells you how you know you have leprosy. And the way you... It was determined that you had leprosy. If you saw a pink spot on your skin, which would make you unclean, especially if it was oozing, if fluid was coming out, that made you ritually unclean if you were Jewish. You had to go and show the priest, the high priest, and he would examine to determine whether it was leprosy. And they had all kinds of tests, and then he would declare you unclean. At that point, you were a leper. And then, if the disease went away, you were cleansed for some reason, like Naaman, only if you were Jewish. Then you would have to go and show the priest. you say, look, it's, the spots are gone away. And then he would do a series of tests, and then he would declare you cleansed. He couldn't cleanse you, but he would declare you cleansed or healed from that leprosy. And then you had to make sacrifices. If you had money, you had to offer oxen and lambs. But if you were poor, then you had to offer turtle doves and birds and things like that for your offering. These were offerings to thank God for healing you. So that's what chapters 13 and 14 of Leviticus are all about. And Jesus says, now here's what I want you to do. You've just been cleansed. I've healed you. I want you to go show the priest. It needs to be confirmed. It needs to be validated by the priest. And he will declare you cleansed. See? And God will get the glory. So while Jesus 
is not afraid to break social protocol, he still keeps the law of Moses. Because that was according to the law of Moses. So he says, but don't tell anybody. Look at verse 15, however. The report went around concerning him all the more. How could you not tell somebody? He said, don't tell anybody. And somebody sees you, you say, hey, where's your leprosy? You don't think that this guy can just sort of sneak off and go to the priest. He has to walk down the street, doesn't he? Didn't people see the healing? Yes, this was a public scene. So obviously they said, your, your leprosy's gone, and the word just spreads around. I mean, that's just natural. You just have to think of how it would be today. Concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. The very thing that was going to, that sort of keeps them from being able to go from town to town, they just start pressing in on Jesus. So, he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So here's the solution. Word spreads around about him. He becomes very popular. And as a result of that, uh, the crowds come. Not intending to do this, they get him sidetracked from his mission, which is to go from city to city and preach the gospel. And so he gets off by himself. And that's his solution. So there's always a tension of Jesus being among the multitude and Jesus getting away in solitude. The multitudes are a barrier, get him sidetracked, Jesus gets away in solitude, starts praying, and gets back on track. Gets his marching orders again from the Lord. So that's what you have. So that is miracle number one. That's event number one. It happened in a certain city. Now look at verse 17. This is the second miracle. And it happened on a certain day. As he was teaching, we don't know where, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, two things jump off this verse, from this verse. One is his audience. Now, we know the crowds are there as he's teaching, but notice who else is there. Number one, Pharisees. These are people who are very pious people who observe the law, and teachers. Other rabbis of the law, okay? That's who comes. What are they doing? Look what it says. They were sitting by. Now that phrase right there should tell you what they're doing. They were sitting by. Where did they come from? All the different regions. Look. They came from Galilee, up north. They came from Judea, in the south. They came from the capital city itself, Jerusalem. This means that this is a contingency that's gotten together, and uh, they're probably representatives of the Jewish rulers from each one of these cities. And why do you think they're there? To hear the teaching of Jesus and get blessed by it? They're checking up on it. This is the first time Pharisees are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And they're there checking up on it. Does his teaching coincide with our teaching and our rabbis of the law? Or does it contrast? Does it contradict what we're saying? So they're checking up on Jesus, and that's just what they're doing. Now notice his twofold ministry there. 
He's teaching in verse 17. But at the end of the verse, it says, And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal. To heal the crowds. And so we see there's a healing and there is a teaching ministry. Now back in 4.18, we saw that when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach. That's the preaching ministry. But he's also allowed me to open the eyes of the blind. That's the healing ministry. So that ministry that Jesus was anointed and commissioned to carry forth is being carried forth on this certain day and he's going to be doing the preaching and the teaching as well as the healing. Then, behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of what? The crowd is always a barrier to Jesus' ministry. So many preachers want big crowds. But see, Jesus often saw the crowd just wanting, 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 and they become hindrances to Jesus' bigger ministry. So they become a barrier, and they become a barrier in this case. So this guy's friends bring him, but they can't get in because of the crowd, verse 19. So they went on the housetop, and they lit him down, with his bed through the tiling, tiling on the roof, into the midst before Jesus. So here these guys say, we can't get him through this crowd. It's just packed. So they go up and they let him down through the roof. And you know that story. I was uh, out at Texas Stadium not too long ago for some meeting. Cliff Barrows was there, Billy Graham's song leader. And he told the story, he said, when the stadium opened, the first event was not a Cowboys game at the stadium. The first event was a Billy Graham crusade. He said when Billy Graham got in there and he looked up and he saw the hole in the roof, he decided to preach on this passage about the men who let their friend down through a hole in the roof so they could come to Jesus. And Cliff said how powerful that message was that particular night. So this crowd's a barrier, but they, they come up with a solution. They let the man down through the roof. Look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, whose faith? Now watch. Everybody says the friend's faith. But it's not that. It's the friend's and the man's faith. It's both of their faith. The man is part of that crowd. When they saw the man's faith and his friend's faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, in verses 18 and 19, and the end of 24 and 25, the focus is on the paralyzed man. It's on the paralysis. In verses 20 through the beginning of 24, the focus is on healing is on healing. So we have two foci here. We have a focus on healing or restoration, and we have a focus on forgiveness of sins or release. There's two foci, release and restoration. Release from sin, restoration of the man's body, and we're going to see how this works out. So Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, now... Why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven you? 
when the man has come for healing? See, that's the question. They bring this man who's paralyzed for healing, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Somebody asked me to pray, for, if Wayne said, would you pray for my headache? I'm feeling sick today. I, I wouldn't say, well, your sins are forgiven you. Why would I say your sins are forgiven you? Why does Jesus do that? Because in the East, the Eastern mindset, there's no separation from mind and body, from spirit and body. That's a Western thing. We're the ones that separate mind and body. But in the East, mind and body are one. And one, and they complement each other. So if the man needs to be healed, he also needs to have a healing of his soul. And you can't have one without the other. So he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what happens is that in verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this? Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they see Jesus when he says your sins are forgiven. Is it Jesus is uh, you know, acting as if he has the prerogatives of God? And they're very upset over this. It shows you that they're judging him. They've come to judge him. They've come to catch him in a mistake. And now they've got him. Only God can forgive sin. Here's this guy going around saying he forgives sins. So in verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, showing that he was a prophet, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning? In your hearts, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Now notice that. In order that you might know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say, what? Rise, take up your bed, and go home. See? In fact, verse 23, which I skipped, he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or rise up and walk? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or rise up and walk? And believe it or not, the answer is neither. They're both equally hard because of that mind-body connection. To say, rise up and walk, is no easier than to say your sins are forgiven. Both take a certain amount of authority and a certain amount of power. So he says that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. So the healing, in a sense, verifies that Jesus can forgive sins. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to notice at the end of verse 17, he says this. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Do you see that? The power of the Lord was present in Jesus' life to heal them. Now look at verse 24. But that you might know that the Son of Man has, what? Power to forgive. Do you see this? Power, in 17, to heal. Verse 24, power to forgive. You see that? Power to heal and power to forgive. Now, the King, New King James has the word power, but that's not quite right. It's, 
different Greek words. The first word power comes from a Greek word dunamis, and you've heard of that word before. It speaks of a dynamic, energetic power. It's a power that, when it's released, accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish. Jesus has power to heal, energetic power. And when he says heal, guess what? They're healed. That second word power in verse 24 is a word that means authority. Authority. And it means right. Jesus has the authority or the right to forgive sins. He has the authority or the right to forgive sins. So you have these two words. Now there's a difference between power and authority. Ken White was a police officer. He had the power, he had the power or the authority, let's put it this way, he had the authority to arrest people. Did you say that? He's a police officer. He had the full authority of the Dallas Police Department behind him. He was authorized to arrest people. But he didn't have the power. There could have been a guy much bigger than he. He said, okay, hands behind your back, and the guy could be going just like that. See, it's one thing to have authority, or to say you have authority. It's another thing to carry out the authority and do it. In order for that to happen, guess what else you need to have? You need to have power. See, now, if Superman says you're under arrest, guess what? You're under arrest. He not only has the authority, but he has the power. So, anyway, so Jesus, to show that he has authority, see, he manifests his power and he heals the God. And so the healing, in a sense, verifies the fact that he has the authority to forgive sins. And both that authority and that power comes from God. He identifies himself in verse 24 as the son of man. Do you see that? That's a phrase that comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, which says, I saw one like the son of man who went into heaven and he received from his father a kingdom. And so Jesus here is manifesting kingdom authority and Jesus is saying that the kingdom has come in your midst. Because I am, I, am the, I am God's representative. I'm forgiving sin. I represent God. I speak on behalf of God. And I heal on behalf of God. Now look at verse 24, 5. Immediately the man rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on, and he departed to his own house, glorifying God. Now let me ask you. Was he only healed or was he also forgiven? It was both. Because that's how they operate. They operate together. He's glorifying God. He believed on Jesus. And he has both. He's forgiven of his sins and as well as being healed. So, Jesus has two obstacles here that he has to overcome. He has to overcome the crowd. <coughs> and he has to overcome the Pharisees to interrupt him in the middle of him working on this man and going to heal this man and forgive this man. These are two obstacles that Jesus has to overcome. And no obstacle is too great for Christ to overcome. It doesn't matter whether it's the Pharisees or whether it's the crowd. Jesus can overcome all these obstacles. He could overcome them then, then and he can overcome them now. Now look at verse 26. Verse 26. And they were, number one, all amazed. I guess so. 
But I said to Peggy, your sins are forgiven. And Dwayne said, you can't forgive her sins. And I said, well, let me show you. To prove to you that the Son of Man can forgive sins, I'll tell her to rise up and walk. And she rises up and walks, which shows that I also have the authority to forgive sins. Wouldn't you be amazed if you saw that happen right here in this classroom? They were all amazed. And they, number two, they glorified God. They started shouting, hallelujah, but guess what else? They were filled with fear. The scary thing to be in the presence when God's power comes down. That's why, yes, you're, you go, whoo, oh, Lord, that's a miracle. But let me tell you, fear sets in. Remember, I've talked about this before. This is one thing that you don't see in all these healing crusades that you see on television. You don't see the fear of God gripping people. Because when you stand in the presence of God's power, the fear grips you. And look what they said here. They said, we have seen strange things when? Today. Does that word mean anything to you? Do you remember back in 421? Look back there. Remember after he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? He's anointed me to preach, to heal. 421, Jesus began to say to them what? Today this scripture is filled in your hearing. And on this certain day in chapter 5, verse 17, on this certain day, the deeds of God were visible to the people again. And every day when God's power is visible, it's today. It is an indication that the kingdom of God has broken in and we are seeing God's miraculous power in our midst. So that word today is a contemporary word. In other words, today if God did something, it's a fulfillment of Jesus being anointed and setting the captives free. So that's what you have here. You have Jesus saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled, and now you have the people saying, we've seen strange things today. <coughs> Every day is today when God's moving. And that's the point that Luke wants to make. Now next week we're going to pick up at chapter 5 and verse 27 with the bringing in of Matthew the tax collector. And then the whole issue of fasting where Jesus is condemned for not fasting. Instead, Jesus feasts. Jesus is a person who feasts. And they try to compare Jesus with John the Baptist. They said, John the Baptist fasts all the time. But you feast all the time. You can't be from God. You're a glutton and a wine-bipper. We'll pick up there next week. <laughs> Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. We thank you for Ben and Peggy's service to our class and that we can share in this and we can participate in this. Thank you, Lord, that we can be part of this class and that this class is, is not about a teacher. This class is not about any individual. This class is about you and your presence and how you mold people together as a body of believers, as a family who love one another. We thank you for that demonstration even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Troy's going to come and say a word about our uh